Good morning, everybody. So this thing's being recorded. Is that why we're doing this? Okay, because otherwise it just feels silly. Okay. So yeah, my name's Tom Miyashiro, and I'm from originally from Willimantic, Connecticut. Anybody know where that is? That's not too too far ish from here. Nothing's too far in Connecticut, and. Uh, and uh, I didn't grow up a Christian. I grew up, um, my parents went to pretty conservative church, probably a little bit about this size. And I was the only young male that attended, which meant that I got drilled every Sunday morning with a lot of Bible stuff. Probably about sixth grade. Uh, Wilmantic's pretty, I'd say it's like an urban cluster. You know, it's not quite urban America, but... But, you know, it's pretty uh, cultured. And uh, going into middle school, found that whatever I was being taught in church was not relevant to surviving middle school. So I flew off the handle pretty quick and got myself in a whole lot of trouble. And uh, by, by the time it came time to go to high school, uh, in a whole lot of trouble. So uh, I spent a short stint in the mental hospital. I, uh, I went to a partial program, um, like an alternative school for a little while. And right about age 16, I met Jesus, and it changed my life. Uh, isn't that cool? You know, I think the church waits for those stories uh, those prodigals or, or even those roughigans that meet Jesus, they, they wait for those stories. They don't happen every day. You read about it in the Bible. Saul on the road to Damascus, he sees that bright light. He sees Jesus. He comes alive. He's still the same guy. He's still a killer. You know, he's still a, he's still a feisty guy. But then the Lord redirects that energy and he begins to like walk out his purpose for his life. In Jesus, same quality, same guy, same gift mix, but as a tool for the kingdom. Man, our whole New Testament is filled with his stories and his insights. You know, most of the New Testament comes from the stuff that Paul went out and did after meeting Jesus. So uh, the church, I think, celebrates when someone comes to Christ and has that big 180. It's that dramatic turn and I I think my story was a little like that after I became a Christian I went back to high school I dropped out I went back to Wyndham High and I led 70 kids to Christ my senior year Uh, that led to me yeah yeah. Uh, that led to me getting a full ride to Bible college my grades were pretty poor and so I can say with all certainty that Jesus made all the difference in the world that from education to uh, the girl I would marry to everything came out of that meeting Jesus and my life just wasn't the same and people knew it because when I went back to high school after dropping out and people saw the fire in my eyes and uh, and I was sharing Jesus left and right people just couldn't understand what happened sure I'm still the same guy still intense but but there was a there was a direction for it. And God God smiled upon that. So 
coming out of high school, uh, went off to a small liberal arts Bible college in West Virginia and uh, studied the Bible. And uh, my SAT scores were quite poorly. I, I don't even think that should have got me into college. But it was the gift of God, the fact that God had taken over my life that the college cared about. They were so excited to hear about the things that I was doing up at my high school that they helped me go to school. And there was a group of men, that small church, my parents uh, kind of took raised me up in that that decided they were going to intervene and make something happen so between the school and these four men uh, full ride to college so I went to college and it was very conservative and I just knew Jesus I didn't know about all the doctrines and all of that stuff I just I just wanted people to know the Lord and it really bothered the college in fact um, the, the church that sort of sits on top of that university believes that you're not born again until you're baptized in water. I don't know if you've ever come across groups like that, but this is the one that my parents' tradition, um, you know, they go to church there. And I was just leading people to the Lord left and right, and and they they had a problem with me theologically. I didn't fit into their box, and it didn't make sense. So, So even the people I was leading to Christ in college, they were questioning their conversions if I had baptized them myself because they weren't baptized for the right reasons or whatever. So, so there was all kinds of controversy surrounding my young ministry years. And upon graduating, I was blacklisted from getting a job in any church under that umbrella. So they gave me my Bible degree, but then I was essentially excommunicated from those churches with no job prospects. But I had a piece of paper. Wonderful. At this point, it was irrelevant to me uh, whether or not I could get a church job. It was pretty obvious that I was not a pastor. Everywhere I went, I was stirring up uh, controversy and also some kind of momentum. So um, at this point, I'd led a young woman to Christ um, from England, and I decided to follow her there. We got married just before I left. And... um, And then I went to the University of Kent in Canterbury, a very magical old city. Um, And the University of Kent is one of Europe's most prestigious universities. It's not Oxford or Cambridge, but it's kind of a real nice setting to go to school. I did my master's degree there in mysticism and religious experience. Kind of spooky. But, you know, it's not a Christian university, and I had to do something. I thought, know thine enemy. Let's study Buddhism and Islam, and let's mix it up and get to know what's out there. And could tell that in my heart, God had birthed uh, a call to reach people for Jesus. It wasn't even like a carved out thing. I just knew that I had joy from knowing Jesus. And it brought me an immense amount of joy to introduce people to Jesus. In fact, every time I led someone to Jesus, it was like I got born again again. You know what I mean? So it recharged the batteries. And it was all like, I just got saved yesterday. And it's been like that since 1998 till this day. I've never stopped moving for Jesus. Shooting all over the planet, sharing the Lord. Uh, Sometimes the audiences get bigger. Sometimes it's just the waitress at the diner. But love sharing Jesus. Come to find out that's a role. That's a role in the church. Um, Pastor Jared, you know, it's in the title. He's a pastor. 
come to find out someone like me is called an evangelist. You ever heard that word before? An evangelist. You know, maybe you've heard it in not so good terms, like the TV evangelist who's getting you to send money for handkerchiefs that he's sneezed on and you're going to get you grow your leg back or something from that. There's been many misuses of the word evangelist and 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 Horrifically for a guy like me who's been given the gift of evangelism, it is very frustrating because people have preconceived notions, just like people have preconceived notions about what a Christian is. People have preconceived, even more preconceived notions of what an evangelist is. So when I walk in the room, people either think I'm like um, a suit-wearing salesman who's going to sell Jesus to people and that's not it that's not it at all um, or they think I'm you know just into money and girls because a lot of TV evangelists go to jail for misusing money or get caught sleeping with the secretary or whatever there's been a lot of P- bad PR for evangelists but you know from my perspective real simply an evangelist is someone who proclaims you know good news good news and um there's been a few good lines of evangelists in America, respected evangelists. One of those big names is Billy Graham, who ran his whole race, and he's now you know, in his 90s, well into his 90s, and, and he's getting ready to do his largest campaign of his life um, called My Hope America, where they're going to stream his preaching onto TVs all across the world and mobilize people to bring their friends over for a meal to watch My Hope together. And then an opportunity for, where, where Billy would normally like pray, you know, he'll, he'll pray, but an opportunity for regular people to share the gospel with their friends. And people getting born again. His probably largest campaign to date, and he's preached the gospel to millions and millions of people. In fact, I think at one point, at his peak of his career, one in two Americans knew, had heard Billy Graham preach the gospel out of his own mouth. That's crazy, right? So, you know, there is a line of true evangelist. Evangelist, someone who proclaims the good news. You know, some qualities of an evangelist, if you've ever met one, maybe you're an evangelist yourself and you don't know it, but you're like, hey, that's me. Um, someone who's fairly bold and has good communication skills, maybe mission-minded and innovative, always kind of thinking outside the box. And you always can tell when there's an evangelist in a small church because they're usually the ones stirring the pot. And if they're out of context, it can be quite painful for everybody else because they want to do evangelism and everybody else doesn't. So they're like, what about spiritual gifts? What about door knocking? What about, you know, and they're, they're trying to move everybody. Move, move, move. And, and, in, and out of context, an evangelist can be a very painful part of the process. But in the right light, in the right context, an evangelism can, uh, an evangelist can bring explosive momentum to a church whatever size doesn't matter and it's not because an evangelist goes out and wins all the people in the community of Jesus but an evangelist and Cliff Burrows who was Billy Graham's kind of right man for over 50 years shared this with me a couple of years ago he said the evangelist isn't given to the church to do evangelism for the church but to teach the church how to do evangelism. And so evangelism, intimidating word, but but really, if you've met Jesus and Jesus has changed your life, 
there is a reason to share Jesus. Share Jesus. Because that, that decision for you is not unique to you. That decision has been transforming lives all over this planet for over 2,000 years. In fact, more people are coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior today than in any time ever known to man. Just by the droves. So, I get a unique perspective as an evangelist. I get to travel a lot. I get to see the church in different lights, in different cultural contexts. I get to see the church across denominational lines. And I get to see God doing what God does best. And He's very much doing it today. And maybe it's hard to see that sometimes. Maybe it's hard for you to see it sometimes in a small church uh, where you have to set everything up every Saturday night. Or if you're, you know, coming early and wondering where that guy with the key is to open the door. You're right, you know, or, you know, and you come in and you're sitting in a hot room with stained glass windows and you're going, you know, what is this thing about? What it, you know, what's the bigger picture here? God, what are you doing? So, We see, you know, that guys like Jared, who pastor, and guys like me who are evangelists, you know, there's a a shared connection we have because our offices are about equipping the saints. And Ephesians gives a little list of those uh, offices in Ephesians chapter 4. So I want to tell you a little bit about my ministry, Faith to Faith, and just take a minute to do it. Um, and the reason why I want to take a minute to do it, because even though you're on the western side of the state, it's probably not going to be before too long before it will have some meaning for you. Um, you know, when I started ministry, when I started Faith to Faith, I just wanted a vehicle so I could go share Jesus. And I started Faith to Faith when I was quite young. I was 19 years old, 19 or 20 years old. I'm 30, 31 years old now. It's been a little over a decade. And for the first five or six years, that's all it was. I'd come to little churches like this or whatever, you know, wherever I could wiggle myself in and I would just share the Lord and people would come to Christ. But then it evolved and after I'd won Amy to Christ, I started street preaching and just trying to figure out what it meant to be an evangelist. And and, and then I met uh, Luis Palau, who's a global evangelist like Billy Graham, and he took me under his wing and started teaching me about what it meant to be an evangelist. Since then, I moved back to Connecticut, and um, through my shared relationship with Jared, the mother church of this church, Calvary Chapel in Uncasville, Pastor Joe got behind Faith to Faith and said, there is a real need for an evangelist in Connecticut. And, and that man single-handedly decided that we needed to be. So he poured resource in, and it wasn't too long before the rest of the community in eastern Connecticut began to latch on as well. And in the last five years, we've shared the gospel with more, with about 4,000 students a year, just in eastern Connecticut. So uh, we see about 100 to 150 kids come to Christ a year, and, um, and the team is growing. So it's not a church. We're a parachurch. Para means alongside of. We come alongside of churches to help churches grow. We're for the local church. We want to see the church in New England come alive again. You know, Connecticut used to be a massively evangelistic state 200 years ago. 
150 years ago, 100 years ago. You know, I was in Hawaii last summer, and the churches that were planted there in Hawaii, you know, I was reading some signs, and, and there's a big YWAM base there, and, and one of the leaders at YWAM was telling me, did you know that our churches here in Hawaii were planted by churches in Connecticut? Did you know that? In fact, there was a, a, a white preacher from New Haven who went to Hawaii, he shared the gospel, and, and, and the natives were having their tribal wars. He decided to rescue one of those children, brought him back to New Haven, committed himself to that child's education. That child went to Yale, grew up to be a pastor, moved back to Hawaii, and he evangelized the entire island. The largest church in the world at that time was in Hilo, Hawaii, and they did something like a thousand baptisms a week. That came out of Connecticut. I believe that God is stirring New England. Now, New England is now considered the least reached place in America, according to George Barna. So, for the church going about its business, in some ways it does feel like it's the darkest hour for the church. There are a lot of things happening in our culture right now that are not right. And Christians are squirming all over the place as we watch different laws get passed and culture shift. And especially here in Connecticut where the churches are just generally smaller, this is overwhelming. And how are we supposed to stick with it? But I'm here to tell you this morning that I actually think that in the darkest times the light shines the brightest. And Jesus does what he always does. And he takes the simple things and confounds the wise. And he overturns governments without raising a sword. Do you know what I'm saying? Jesus Christ is still the hope of the world. And, And in this day and in this age, he's decided to distribute salvation and healing across the world through you guys. So, you know, faith to faith is not the only thing out there, but, but from my perspective, with my growing team, I get to see people right here in Connecticut come to know Christ by the droves. And I don't mean by doing church meetings and have people raise their hand. I mean by thinking creatively about how we wiggle into schools and how we meet with city leaders and how we are present in the culture to serve the culture so that we have the right then to share the gospel. It's very important, church. And if you guys can capture a vision for that, then this church will grow. Because it's not in the leadership that things grow. It's in, it's in the leader of the church. And if the leader is Jesus Christ and you're surrendered to Him, then all things are possible. And God can do wonderful things with just a small group of people. Just ask the 12 disciples. And there's just a few more here today than He used back then. He changed the whole world before Facebook. How do you do that with just a couple guys? The Lord can do it. So, I've said enough about that. I, I want to encourage you guys this morning. You know, I went to your, you know, I do this in a lot of churches. I go to their website and everybody tries to have it look a certain way. And I, I just kind of peruse real quick to find the church's mission statement. I try and read it. I try and understand it, especially if I've never been there before. And so I, I found the bit that's in bold the end of the about us section who we are 
And I want to read it back to you. Anybody have the church's mission statement memorized? Anybody? Sorry, Jared. (laughs) Okay. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Just a bit in bold. Just a bit in bold. Our focus here at Calvary is to try and do our best to cultivate an environment of authenticity and openness while still maintaining God's truth in a humble, loving way. You know the thing? You know, Jared's a pioneer, right? He started a new thing here. It's very hard to start a new thing, isn't it? It's exhausting, isn't it? It probably took, and this is not to discourage you, it probably took five or six years before I saw any momentum for all the things I was trying to get going. So if you can make it over that five-year hub, things get easier. So that's your encouragement. I'm just saying, no, and that's supposed to be an encouragement. It really is, because you just set the date on the calendar and you just do, it's just like working out, you know, you just kind of keep showing up and keep showing up and eventually your belly doesn't stick out as much, right? Keep showing up and trying, you know? But you make that five-year hub and the Lord starts to bless. Anyway, the church's vision statement. Our focus here at Calvary is to try and do our best. I read it. I'm going to read it again so I can, because, you know, get it in my head. Uh, Do our best to cultivate an environment of authenticity. So we want to be real as Christians, right? That's, That's what we want to do. We want to be real. We want to be approachable. We don't want to be like, oh, I could never hang out with those people because they're so perfect. You know, well, we all know that's not true, right? Like, we all got our stuff. In fact, the church is for the broken. People come here broken, and they find life in Jesus. It doesn't mean all our problems are fixed, but it means we have a, we're connected to a source of life, right? <clears throat> and then, um, an openness while maintaining God's truth in a humble, loving way. In other words, we're not going to compromise who we are as believers. Like, we want to be open, we want to be real, but we want to also stand up for what's right and, and we want to stand up for God. So that's an awesome mission. Did I, did I get it right? Is that what you're going for there? Okay, there it is. Okay, so, so you know, within this mission statement is, um, is sort of a, a charge that lines up with the Scripture. Scripture, uh, you know, you think about Jesus and, and what he wants from us, you know, and, and he said lots of things, you know, he, he summed everything up in two commands, you know, love God and love others, right? But, you know, right before he goes back to heaven, he charges the church. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Mark 16. He says, go out into the world. Share the good news with all creation. Or make disciples with all creation. And, 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 and this is at the center of salvation, is to go out and to say and go out and to share, to go out and allow other people to experience God's love through your contact with them. Okay, so, so I'm trying to... What I want to happen here is for there to be an eclipse between that great commission, that Jesus' last words on earth, and your church's mission statement. Because it's not a passive thing. We don't stand back and say, uh, well, you know, this is the truth and this is who we are. You know, that openness and authenticity uh, is not just unlocking the door on Sunday morning and opening it up so people can wander in here. That openness and authenticity paired with that charge means that this community needs to be very visible in Naugatuck. And that, and that in order for people to feel 
that this is a place that is approachable, then you have to be in a place where people can approach you. You know, does that make sense? So, you know, like I just think off the top of my head, how could this community be approachable? Well, I drove into town this morning and they've got the streets closed off because they're floating ducks down the road. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? You know, I mean, it's there. A very approachable way that this church could serve lots and lots of people in Naugatuck is to be there with the ducks and the people, maybe handing out water because it's so hot today, offering to pray with people. That's just an idea that came to me off the top of my head and it's a lot of people doing stuff like that. But those are the kind of ways that we can be visible and serve other people and, and be authentic and real and who we are and visible so that the community can experience God's love. So, so I, I, I entitled this message, you know, Choose Your Own Adventure. Do you, did anybody read those books growing up? And it's, it's just a very small point, but I, I loved them. I'm not a big reader, but I did love Choose Your Own Adventure books because probably fit my ADD personality. It didn't go one, two, three, four, five. You came to a page and said, turn to page 32 if you choose this. Page, turn to page 157 if you choose this. And so, you know, with my craziness and my, you know, short attention span, it pleased me a great deal to skip around in the book. And sometimes the book was real short because you died or something. It came to an end real fast. You start the book all over again. Maybe it goes a little longer. You make better choices along the way. And, uh, and, and it just felt like an adventure reading the book. So, you know, the Great Commission is a choose-your-own-adventure kind of statement. It's a choose-your-own-adventure kind of message to the church. Because Jesus is giving you full-on permission. It's not just permission. He's commanded for us to go out and stir stuff up. And it's going to look different for each one of us. Because not everybody's going to do it the way I do it. Not everybody's going to go into a college and tick everybody off to get kicked out of it. You know, like, you know, that that's, may not be you. Some of you might be rebel, rebellious and the Lord can use that to stir some stuff up. Some of you might do it in a more gentle way. Uh, some of you are not super outgoing. So, you know, positioning yourself in a place where you're going to have to tell it and tell it and tell it, it's never going to be you. And I, I love that that's why Jesus, you know, gives us two versions of the Gospels. One that says, go out and tell the world and go out and make disciples. Because no matter who you are and what your personality is, there is no getting out of it. You have to go out and you have to share God's love with people. The burden is on us to go do that. So whether you're an introvert or an extrovert or whether you love big crowds or you just can't stand them, like there's just no excuse. God has told us we need to go out and share Him with others. So I wanted to give you guys some practical ways that you can go out and share the Gospel. And it begins with prayer. And I love your commitment to prayer, having prayer meetings. A lot of churches have canceled midweek. Uh, services and midweek kind of gatherings because uh, you know it's just one more thing to do in a week but you know what like things don't change unless you're praying that's just a fact you may never get a call to go to the mission field go to a land far away and learn another language but here's one thing you can do when you pray 
you can transcend the tangible world and go anywhere in your prayer life. You compare yourself with any other human being, human experience on earth and be right there with those people, with those believers who are smuggling Bibles into China or, or, uh, or you know, those folks in India who are being persecuted by you know, radical Islamists or Hindus. You know, you can be right there in the mix in your prayer life. And it's not something you're just imagining. It's something that God partners you with you with to go and do. My mentor, Luis Palau, he's a global evangelist, just like Billy Graham, who helped him get his start. Um, he goes all over the world, shares the gospel with millions of people. He often shares that in the early days, before he was uh, climbing his ascent to global evangelism, he, he sh- shares uh, quite regularly that he would get together with a close friend and pray, and they had a little book that had all the nations of the world. And he would just go through those pages with his friend and they'd lay hands on a country and begin to pray for those people, pray for the needs of those countries, uh, pray for the salvations of those countries. And they'd do it on a weekly basis. Before long, he developed such a burden for those countries that he found himself preaching the gospel in those countries. To the regular people and to the leaders of those countries. I mean... It all begins with that burden of prayer, praying. Oftentimes, the Lord, instead of maybe taking your prayer and making a miracle happen somewhere else, will put the burden on you so heavily to pray that it inspires you to rise up and go do something about it. And you become part of the answer to prayer. Isn't that something? Let me read you something that Billy Graham said about prayer. And I love this little bit of his message because uh, he mentions things that happen here in New England. So, I can't do his voice, so I won't pretend, pretend to be him. From one end of the Bible to the other is the record of those whose prayers have been answered. Those who turned the tide of history by prayer. Those who fervently prayed and God answered. Abraham prayed and so long as he prayed, God did not destroy the city of Sodom where Abraham's nephew Lot lived. Hezekiah prayed when his city was threatened by invading armies of the Assyrians under the leadership of Sennacherib. The entire army was destroyed and the nation was spared for another generation because the king prayed. Elijah prayed and God sent fire from heaven to consume the offering on the altar he'd built in the presence of God's enemies. Elisha prayed and the son of the Shunammite woman was raised from the dead. Jesus prayed at the door of the tomb of Lazarus and the one who had been dead for four days came forth. The thief on the cross prayed and Jesus assured him that he would be with him in paradise. Paul prayed and churches were born in Asia Minor and in Europe. Peter prayed and Dorcas was raised to life to have added years of service for Jesus Christ. John Wesley prayed and revival came to England. Jonathan Edwards prayed and revival came to Northampton, Massachusetts where thousands of people joined the churches. 
churches just like this one. History has been changed time after time because of prayer, and it could be changed again if people went to their knees in believing prayer. What a glorious thing if it would be if millions of us would avail ourselves of the privilege of prayer. Jesus Christ died to make this communion and communication with the Father possible. He told us of the joy in heaven when one sinner turns from sin to God and breathes the simple prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And you know, in one of Billy's final public interviews, where... um, you know, and not too long ago, uh, a news anchor asked him uh, what he would do differently if he had the opportunity to do it all over again. And he said he would have preached less and prayed more. And for a guy who accomplished all the things he did, that's a remarkable statement. And I don't think he meant um, the evangelistic messages. I think he meant all the conferences and church services and all the pomp and circumstance that surrounds a public figure like that. And, 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 and I can appreciate that. And, and, and as a younger uh, evangelist, recognize that that needs to be at the core of what I do. And as a church, you guys should recognize is at the core of what you do. That prayer opens the doors of heaven and opportunities for the church to go out and do its good work. The next thing you do is invite. Now, now this fellow who I'm going to quote is a controversial guy. He's pretty much you know, discredited himself in all kinds of ways. And I'm going to say his name again. Some of you are going to be like, oh my days, he's going to quote that guy. But he, he wasn't wrong about everything. And he wasn't crazy when he started. So I'm going to quote something he said from his first book, Velvet Elvis. His name's Rob Bell. And, uh, and he said this wonderful thing about inviting people. So you you can pray, and then secondly, you can invite. Rob said, The truth clicked for me last Friday in a new way. Somebody showed me a letter from the president of a large seminary who is raising money to help train leaders who will defend Christianity. The letter went on about the desperate need for the defense of the truth, uh, for the true faith, and what disturbed me was the defensive posture of the letter, which reflects one of... Uh, one of the first things that will happen in the brick world. He spent a lot of time talking about how right you are, which of course leads to how wrong everybody else is, which then leads to defending your wall. It struck me reading the letter that you rarely defend a trampoline. You invite people to jump on it with you. So what he's saying is that in, in terms of defending truth, what's happening is you're building a brick wall and walls are built to keep people out. Part of being authentic and open and, and bringing truth to the world maybe isn't in a defensive posture, but in a posture that invites people to join in the fun. So he, Rob likened that to a trampoline. Whereas you can uh, be on your trampoline and jumping on your trampoline, having a good time, and other people see you having a good time, you invite them to come jump with you. Maybe there's a few too many people on the trampoline and a spring pops out. Whereas the bricks of a wall would be the doctrines of the church, the springs in this sort of construct would represent the doctrines of the church. If a brick falls out of the wall, the whole wall starts falling apart. But if spring pops out, you've got others. There's flexibility in the trampoline to, to withhold 
a spring popping out or two. Does that make sense? Now if enough springs fall out, the whole thing falls apart. But the idea is that there's flexibility and that and that it and that it's something that people see you doing that is exciting and you want to participate with them. Does that make sense? So you can pray, you can invite, and then of course you can send. Now, this is a young church, but it's never too early to start to fuel the gospel uh, through personal finance. And I'm not saying this so you can give me money. I'm saying this because as a missionary myself, one of the biggest joys of my life is to give to the kingdom. Give to things that have nothing to do with me. Give to things that have nothing to do with faith to faith. Give to faith to faith too, in terms of I give to faith to faith too. But, but I didn't have to wait until... I reached a certain amount of threshold before I could start making a difference. You know, and, and, and a lot of times, you know, the TV guys, they overemphasize giving money. But like, if you're working crazy hours and jobs and this is all the best you can do, I think finance is a great way to partner with the gospel and fuel mission all over the planet. You might not be able to be there, but your buck can go all over the world. Feed children, you know, build schools, share the gospel in a powerful way. I mean, it is. Now, that being said, I think that in American culture, we use that as an excuse to not get involved. And we write a check to absolve ourselves of responsibility of personally sharing. And that's my last point today. We can, we can go. We can go ourselves. And this is where you get to choose your own adventure. Taking the Bible literally has never disappointed me on this one. Because when I read Jesus' words to go when I was 16 years old, that's what I did. And the boldness sort of came from watching God never disappoint me. It didn't come because it was purely personality driven. It became a thing that was quite normal because God continued to exceed my expectations when I stepped out in faith. Now this could be where there's a little bit of a disconnect sometimes, you know, in our worlds because we're we're flooded with our own problems and our own relational difficulties, financial difficulties, uh, busyness of life. But when we begin to sort of shift ourselves and our focus off of ourselves and our own problems and onto the Lord Jesus and His creation and concern and care for His creation, something wonderful begins to happen because God takes our stretched and broken lives and He begins to produce lasting fruit from it. So, a couple examples, recent ones. Well, this January, I took a massive risk of faith and I invited this family from England to move to Connecticut as missionaries. They said yes and they showed up. I just said it and I just bypassed four years of experiences of getting to that point. It's a very easy thing for you to hear. It's a very easy thing for me to say. But within that statement I just made is packaged 
emotions from both me and this family and financial worry and stress and two years of applying for visas and getting them denied and fixed to get to the place where they got on a plane and came to America like Abraham did when God told him to go and leave the land where he grew up and go to a new place where God was going to show him a promised land. It was not an easy thing for this family. And it was not an easy thing for me to invite them. And with the resources that Faith to Faith has, frankly, if, if anybody really knew how fast and loose it happened, nobody would have ever allowed it to happen. But sometimes when you step out on, in faith and you believe in a dream God's put in your heart, you take those big risks. God loves to reward faith. Hebrews 11.6 says that. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Impossible. Because anyone who comes to God must believe that He exists, that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. In other words, without faith, God is not happy. With faith, He is also very happy because He wants to bless you for having faith. And the big results, people, come in our Christian walk when we put it all on the line and bet God and go for it. So to not go, to not believe God at His Word, to not take the Great Commission seriously is to deny yourselves God's greatest blessings for your life. Because in that self-denial, in that bending to God's will and saying, God, I'll do whatever you want for my life, I am a vessel that you can use. Then he is hindered and displeased because he's hindered at moving resources through your hands, moving miracles through your hands, moving answers to other people's prayers through you. Isn't that something? So like, faith takes a bit of boldness. And you don't start by having faith by just, you know, I believe in next steps. I believe that faith is a journey. It's an adventure. You know, I named the ministry Faith to Faith, Faith from First to Last, because I believe you take faith steps throughout the course of your life. And what's faith to me might not be faith to you, because maybe you've got a lot of money and you don't need to believe the Lord for a house by in two weeks for a family. I need a house for this family in two weeks. We still don't know where they're going to move in two weeks. It's a lot of stress for me. But at the same time, the Lord provides. A month ago, I am worried. And there's pressures. There's all kinds of pressures. There's all kinds of pressures when you live by faith. Because living by faith means you're putting it all on the line and you don't know where the answer's coming from. You just know God's going to do it. So about a month ago, I'm kind of losing the plot and there's a lot of pressure from the local churches to make a public announcement about where I'm going to send this family next. And I don't know. But I'm saying I'm confident the Lord is going to do something wonderful. So uh, I'm losing the plot a little bit. I get a text from a friend, and he says, uh, and it says 911. Sunday morning, getting ready to walk out the door for church. I call him up. What's going on, man? What's the emergency? He goes... The emergency is, the Lord told me to give you my car. I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, 
Listen, I saw you drive around that old clunker and the Lord burdened my heart and said, I need to do something about it. I came home and told my wife, she said, you're crazy, what are you going to drive? I said, I don't know, the Lord just told me to do it. I'm just trying to be obedient. I don't know, I don't know what you should do. A couple days later, her parents ended up buying them a new vehicle. And then he said to his wife, you see, I told you, we should have been obedient. The Lord wants to bless us, we need to give this car. She said, okay, honey, you, you go ahead and do what you think you need to do. Well, in the process, it's not about a car, it's about the situation of my other car, which I had no idea. I'm so consumed with this family and getting their needs sorted and figuring out where this house is going to come from that, uh, that I was not aware that uh, in the back struts and in all the wheel wells of my current ride, they were rotten out and the back wheel is about to fall off any day now. I realized living by faith doesn't cover just the things we're asking for. Faith, living by faith covers for the things we're not even aware of. That God was watching my back, my very life, providing. The 911 was for me. It wasn't for Him. It was for me. Do you understand that the Lord was covering the things I was not even aware of? And I came to the realization that, if Lord, if you're aware of the things that I'm not even thinking about to ask, how much more the things that I've stepped out in faith and put before you? Right? So the next time I come, I'll tell you about this house thing. I don't know yet, but the next time I come, I'll tell you. Listen, there's no other way to live. There is no other way to live. And when you bet on God, you will never be disappointed. He will amaze you with His resources and provision and His people and the wonderful, generous ways that He sorts a thing out that you could never predict. Never, ever in a million years. God never disappoints. And this is the kind of Christianity that the world is gagging for. They are begging for it. They are saying, where is that life? Where is that abundant life? Christians were supposed to have the answer. The only way we live that way is to dig deep and bet it all on the line and live like God is real. Can we do that? So, so uh, just in closing, I've got a few responses for you guys. And, and it's a response I give to everybody. I don't know who knows the Lord, who doesn't know the Lord. But <clears throat> as an evangelist, I wouldn't be an evangelist if I, if I weren't challenging you guys to pray, to make a commitment to pray for your unsaved friends to come to know the Lord. And if you've so insulated yourself with Christians that you don't have any unsaved friends, you've missed the plot big time. And and frankly, the church at large has missed the plot big time with this. Because being a Christian doesn't mean you surround yourself with a bunch of people just like yourself and disappear into the culture of the thing. Being a Christian means you've got the answers to life's most difficult questions. By not being in the world visible, you are stopping God from doing what God does, which is bring salvation to the world. So, position yourself. Pray for friends who don't know the Lord. Maybe it's someone you're going to meet this week. And then another response, you know, that, you, that God will show you how you can use your resources, if you have them, to fuel mission around the world Maybe it's in this church. Maybe the pastor has a great idea for reaching the community and you need to link arms with him and pour a resource into it so that an environment can be created where someone can hear the good news. It's got to happen.
And then maybe today's message stirred some stuff up in your own heart. And you're going, you know, I had that one thing and I thought God maybe was telling me to do it. Um, I had that one vision for this or that. Or maybe God even was calling you to the mission field. And you heard that call today. So give you an opportunity to answer that call. Or maybe you don't know the Lord today. And you're hearing about that life for the first time. It's real easy. You just open. It's the same process of faith from beginning to end. From the first day you made Jesus to my car wheel is about to fall off and I need something new or whatever it is. Or, you know... Or maybe it's you've just been diagnosed with cancer. It's the same process. It's believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I haven't said a lot about my wife Amy, but she's amazing. She's a brilliant, brilliant young scientist. She, uh, she's English. She was beautiful. She and she loved the Lord. And after I told her about uh, the good news of Jesus, and and you know, I don't know what it was, but you know, it's probably the Lord living in me. I definitely married up. You know, she, uh, we fell in love. We got married, and and a couple years into marriage, she got diagnosed with brain cancer. And so the whole reason I came back to Connecticut was to take care of her. She was sick for about four years. And then she passed away in 2010. I'm telling you this this morning, and at the very end, not for sympathy, not for heavy size, but to tell you, number one, about the urgency of the Gospel. That, you know, if I hadn't been obedient to share the Gospel with Amy, she would have died in her sin, and she would have died young in hers. She would have died young without a hope. I shared the gospel with her. I married her and then I lived the gospel out for Amy for the length of our marriage which was shorter than it should have been. And she she had real faith in Christ. And she graduated from this life to the next one. And I know she's got a better husband now. She's got Jesus. Himself. And that the Lord used me, positioned me in her path to hear the gospel, to walk the gospel out, to walk the gospel out with her so that she could hold on to it through some very difficult days and maintain that belief so that when she was ready to go, she's good. It's the rest of us down here that got to figure it out. You know, I've got to figure it out still. So, so these different decisions, you know, whether it's to go, to give your heart to the Lord for the first time, to, to sow into ministry, to, <clears throat> to uh, believe for your unsaved friends. I'll give you an opportunity this morning to, to bring all that before the Lord. Let's bow our heads together. Close with the word. So Lord, uh, thanks for time this morning here in Naugatuck. Never been here before. I'll always remember the ducks. Um, we, talked about, we talked about knowing you this morning. We talked about what it was like. And, and hopefully 
you know, people had memories of what, what happened when they came to know you, that first contact with you where it was like a, a ray in the darkness and it pierced our heart and just melted away some of the rubbish and just brought a new beginning, a new sense of hope that things could be better, that there was more to life than whatever it was we were doing the day before. That you, you restored us, gave us a hope for a brighter future and that on the other side of this life we're going to live with you forever. God, today I bring before you these people and I pray that uh, your vision for their lives go deep. And then these different opportunities to respond that Lord, they take these challenges seriously. For those friends that don't know you, Lord, maybe prodigals or brothers or sisters who are far from you, addicted to things, trapped in things. Lord, I join my faith with theirs for their salvations, that you'd meet them in those dark places. Lord, that you'd provide opportunities for these guys to, to share you in those dark places. Lord, for, for, for your gospel, for your sake, Lord, that you would use this church to fuel mission, to be a light in this community. Lord, to, to be unashamed, to be unashamed to stand with you, even though they're few in number, or that they'd make a stand, and that you'd grow this church. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity, the privilege to be with these guys this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Tom. Why don't you come on up, too, so we can uh, pray together. All right. And... uh...